Hello, A24 fans. My name is Eric Kiska. I'm welcoming you to a podcast where we are attempting to watch every single A24 film in chronological order of distribution. And we drink booze while we do it, so our reviews become spicier, more philosophical, or maybe less coherent as we go on. My beverage of choice tonight is Sea Glass Pinot Noir from the Central Coast. Up next, we have my lovely wife, Kelly. Hey, it's the lovely wife, Kelly. And tonight, I am just drinking water because I'm feeling sleepy, and I don't need any help feeling sleepier. After me comes... Good evening, world. This is Kevin K. Konkonacek, and much like Miss Kelly, I am also drinking water. So, I'm sorry, Eric, your your eloquent introduction about how booze is going to make this more spicy just is going to lay flat tonight, because ice water is, Put some you know, what's key. pepper in it or I, something. I am in my ice water. And up next, we have... What's up? It's your boy, Blaze. It's your old Ryan back at it for another week. Uh, Eric, I will hold you down. I am drinking Coppertail Unholy American Triple Ale, my, one of my favorites. So, uh, let's get into this movie. Fantastic. So tonight we are reviewing the film Swiss Army Man, and you know what that means. We're going to let it rip. Because societal norms are bullshit and farting should be okay to do in public, I'm going to go through a brief history of farting. So uh, if you're unfamiliar with farting, the Oxford Dictionary describes it as an emission of gas from the anus. Flatulence derives from the Latin word flatus, which means the act of blowing. The earliest written record of farting dates back to 1900 B.C. Mesopotamia, where an old joke was written. Something which has never occurred since time immemorial, a young woman did not fart in her husband's lap. Uh, Dante's Inferno mentions a demon who uses his ass as a trumpet. Uh, in the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer describes Nicholas as letting fly a fart as loud as it had been a thunderclap. Benjamin Franklin, one of America's founding fathers, published an essay titled Fart proudly, in which he suggested that research be undertaken into methods to improve the odor of human flatulence. Franklin recommended this on behalf of well-bred people who refrained from breaking wind, fearful of giving olfactory offense. He also observed that were it not for the odiously offensive smell accompanying such escapes, polite people would probably be under no more restraint in discharging such wind and company than they are in spitting or blowing their noses. And then also we have in the late 19th and early 20th century, Farting became a profession. There was a famous farter named La Petomaine, or the Fartomaniac, and this man would apparently insert a rubber tube into his anus and play the French national anthem. He would also blow out candles from several yards away for patrons that included Edward, Prince of Wales, and Sigmund Freud. So, Kelly, now that I've described a brief history of farting to you and how it has been an important part of human history and the human experience, what do you think of farting? I think I'm on this podcast to talk about movies. But farting's a large part of Swiss Army Man, so... Well, I'll go ahead and tell you right now, not very partial to fart humor. Well, it's not fart humor, it's the history of farting and how it's been a large part of the human experience. Kevin, well, what do you think? I think you... Or Kelly, oh, keep going. yes, please, I yeah. need her to finish no, this No, 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 I'm happy to 
pass this one along. Uh, well, uh, I think Eric so eloquently um, laid out for us and the listeners why farting um, is such a, um, a mystique piece of human history. Um, and I'm just going to support it and say that uh, I'm with Eric. We need to have more public flatulence in um, the 21st century. Uh, so bring it on. Public farting. Let's go. Please? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like- what do you think about farting in the courtroom? Oh, I love it. I'd like to add another uh, pop culture, Monty Python's Holy Grail, I fart in your general direction, is one of the funniest lines in that movie. This movie really goes gets into it about how uh, farting is a faux pas, and like we, it's society that makes farting bad, because everyone does it. Uh, the first couple months with my girlfriend, I don't think I farted once in front of her, and then I let that first silent but deadly go, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's been bliss ever since. So let's, let's get farting back into the... Uh, you know, social conscience again, because I'm for it. It's great. Well, as we know, farting is a large part of this film, which is, of course, Swiss Army Man. And this film is about a man named Hank, played by Paul Dano, who is seemingly stranded near the Pacific Ocean and about to kill himself before he finds a dead body on the beach. And this dead body is played by Daniel Radcliffe. All this dead body is doing is farting, but not long after, a bag of cheese puffs floats in from the ocean and Hank is given hope to try to find civilization once again. Soon thereafter, he realizes Manny is not just a dead body, but a Swiss Army man that Hank can use for survival to try to guide himself back to civilization. Kevin, I believe, are you the only one here that this is your first time seeing it? Yeah, I mean, unless... Oh, oh Blaze uh, too. It's also Blaze's first yeah, time. Definitely okay. first time for me. So, uh, I will ask Kevin, or I will ask both of you, but uh, Kevin, you go first. Is this not one of the best title cards for a film that you've ever seen? Paul Dano riding a farting Daniel Radcliffe across the Pacific Ocean with his pants down. Yeah, 100%. It was um, a delicately done image, if that makes sense. So it's an absolutely ridiculous thought, especially when you direct or when you describe it like that. But if you can make it through the first seven and a half minutes of this film you're hooked for the rest of it. And I think that's a very, very critical point. And I think that the Daniels, when they wrote and directed this, they understood that this movie isn't going to be for everybody. But if you can appreciate that first seven minutes, and like you said, that that title track going across with, you know, the fart boat just going across the ocean and the beautiful soundtrack playing in the background. No, there there isn't a better one in recent memory for me, especially not in A24. All right, Blaze, what did you think of that title card? Yeah, everything that Kevin said and more. Um, I really enjoyed the opening of this movie. It showed how the movie was going to play out. It takes genuine, real-life subjects, and it adds just such a level to absurdity to it that it, you almost get like lost in its own crosshairs. I watched it, and I turned to my girlfriend, and I said, this is such a Blaze movie, how come I haven't watched this yet? <laughs> the farting, it really got to me, and just, you know, I mean, we can get going to the, like, themes of Desert Island and stuff like that. What a perfect opening sequence to tell us what this movie was going to be about. Yeah. Lost for words. So our, our directors for this film were, of course, the Dans, or Daniel Shiner and Daniel Kwan, who just won an Academy Award not too long ago. For Best Director, they directed the highest-grossing A24 film of all time, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and they're definitely now uh, publicly known, very well-known amongst the Hollywood crowd. Uh, Swiss Army Man was their debut feature film, but before they directed that, they directed music videos, Houdini by Foster the People, and Turn Down for What by Lil Jon, a very eclectic uh, two different styles of music, both of them which earned a Grammy nomination. Uh, Kelly... 
What do you think of their directorial style? And uh, are they are auteurs? Define auteurs for the audience, not for me. Auteur, I would say, is an artist that kind of creates their own like genre of art in a way. Like it's their own theme. They are distinctly creating something that is only them. Like Quentin Tarantino, for example, he has certain things he does in his films where if you watch a Tarantino film, you know immediately it's them. Or Picasso and the way he drew humans, right? Uh, It was very distinct. You saw a Picasso painting, you know it's Picasso. Yeah, okay, well said. Uh, In that case, 100%. It was a leading question, but I completely agree. I... Well, you could say no. Couldn't watch. <laughs> <But yeah. laughs> I couldn't watch Swiss Army Man with not, without thinking of everything everywhere all at once. Now, it is our second time, Eric and my second time seeing Swiss Army Man together, and now I'm seeing it through the lens of this other movie that they made. These music videos make a lot of sense because they do have a very distinct style, and it is this overarching concept of life is like really quite bleak so just be absurd just that's their philosophy behind it and then a lot of kind of just like stylization behind the way that they do their action sequences in this movie a lot of the time it's this interesting slow-mo uh it's almost like camera shots for a sec it it changes things or a big zoom out after close-ups and everything everywhere all at once does a lot of those same kind of treatments so Definitely a style that as soon as you know about it, if you've seen two movies, I think that we're going to see this carry on through. Kevin, what do you think of their directorial style and what do you think it is too? Not to piggyback off Kelly's idea that it was leading question, because I know that's not your intent at all, but I think that this movie created that so obviously that you couldn't answer any other question, any way to that question, because what they created is something truly unique, um, especially for me not being a huge cinephile and not having a whole lot of other references. Um, but it's very clear that this hour and a half feature is kind of a stretch of a, of a music video almost. At least for me, it felt that way um, with, the, with the heavy inclusion. And when we get to the whole soundtrack bit, that'll be heavy what I focus on. But I think that they're taking the genre of that music video stretching it into a feature like film and giving us more meat to hold on to and more idea and substance where a music video you just have that three and a half four minutes of whatever is generated through the image in the song this time they really had a an opportunity to move that forward into a different place so yes they created their own genre on this and i think that they're continuing to piggyback off this with great success as we see um with their most recent oscar wins and hopefully the future for the dance same question to you, Blaze, since I know you're such a big fan of everything, everywhere, all at once also. I wanted to definitely ask you that. This yeah, time. I mean, their style is, like, just so characteristically them. It's not exactly visually what uh, everything, everywhere, all at once is, but you can definitely see where that movie got its its soul from because they both take very, very serious subjects that we all deal with very generalized too it's all about you know self-doubt you know what uh where we belong in society stuff like that and they turn it into an absurdist dream it's a dreamscape like kevin said it almost feels like it's so fantastical that it feels like a music video and you really feel like every single like prop in the film that they use is it means something 
And again, the way they make serious subjects light, but also makes you reflect it in on yourself. It's such a unique style that I haven't seen replicated in very many other movies. So I think it's just amazing what they're doing and I can't wait for their next piece. Recycling seems to be a big theme of this film. And uh, Hank is constantly recycling trash to create entertainment and to survive. And all of Manny's powers are essentially from uh, recycled things. Uh, Kelly, what did you think uh, they were trying to say with the motif of recycling? I didn't even really pick up on that. I only got like he's trying to survive and people waste a lot of crap all the time. And what happens to this waste? And then Manny, when he begins talking and making word associations, associates his own corpse with trash. And it's Mm -hmm. this we discard things. That's the message that I got behind it. But I understand the recycling aspect. But yeah, what I got from it was definitely just like, stop wasting stuff all the time, making garbage everywhere. So we'll go forward in the film and then back. There's the line, everyone's everyone's shit mixing together. That sounds pretty nice. You know, as we die, we are all just basically in the dirt mixing together and we our energy gets recycled back into the earth. Uh, Kevin, uh, yeah, I know now I'm going to ask a leading question, um, but what did you think of the motif of recycling? Um, I thought that the theme of recycling was actually a little bit more centered around um, the idea, like Kelly had mentioned, of garbage um, and the idea that everything in this film felt kind of discarded, including our main character. Society has discarded mm-hmm. him, has put him off to the side. And now through this journey with this Swiss Army man, we start seeing some of the repurposing of that trash. We start seeing the creativity that can be put into it when we'll say society invests in an individual who may have mental illness or where a person who dig down deep inside turns a bad situation into something good. Uh, I think that the recycling theme in there is really about the journey that we have of our main character and kind of how he goes from that suicidal individual that we see right at the beginning and we'll call it recycling, but takes what was maybe lost to him, refines it and kind of repurposes it in a new way. Mm-hmm. We actually, I just rewatched the first scene again before we got on. And the first thing we see is those floating pieces of garbage and the boat that he's created with the notes that he says, I don't want to die alone. And so we really get that theme right away from the very beginning. The first visuals that we get is just created boat and then all the other things that we see. So it's an overarching theme that goes throughout the whole thing. And I really appreciate it without it being dead on the nose. Mm -hmm. So, uh, of course, Hank, you know, he was our main character. And although Manny is a very important character, he's pretty much kind of an extension of Hank as Manny only exists in this world through the guidance that Hank gives him, you know, throughout the full film, Hank is kind of describing to Manny what civilization is like, just kind of more broadly, uh, Blaze, what did you think of Hank as a character? And what did you think of Paul Dano's portrayal of him? Uh, Paul Dano did a phenomenal job of basically, you know, the first 20 minutes, 25 minutes, he was basically acting by himself with a uh, fake dead Daniel Radcliffe. The character is very, very, very relatable to me on a lot of levels. Um, I think we all feel at times that we're not good enough to be loved, that we're not good enough for our family. And, you know, we, we repress things inside us. You know, we feel like society would drag us through the dirt for it. And we'd rather just be on our own and deal with it ourselves. 
the way he conveys it and the way that Manny gives him life, like I know there's like, you take it as, you know, it was all in his head, that Manny is his id, it's his soul, it's what it's the dead part of him that is finding purpose with his life and he is lost in the wilderness of, you know, society. The character of Hank finds himself in the journey. There's times where he shuts down again. It's it's just such a apropos vision of what like isolation to yourself is and the way that again that they can sprinkle humor in with it was masterfully done but yeah he's uh he does a phenomenal job for basically having to carry the first 20 minutes of the movie by himself and then you know gradually daniel radcliffe comes in but he does a phenomenal job very very underrated Kevin, same question to you. What do you think of Hank as character, and uh, what do you think of Paul Dano's portrayal of him? Absolutely. So I'm going to start with um, Paul Dano's portrayal of him. So doing a little bit of research on this, it kind of turned out that um, Paul Dano got uh, involved with this project about a year and a half before they even started filming it. Uh, he was reached out by the Daniels, and uh, immediately upon reading the script, uh, Paul Dano talks about being defensive and protective of the character that he hasn't even created yet, meaning that he had an immediate connection with the words on the page and could see himself... Uh, riding a Daniel Radcliffe fart boat across the ocean. And if you can get across that absurdist part and then read into the meat of it, I don't think there could have been another person who could have done this role better. And, of course, hindsight, you know, looking at it from the perspective that he's already done it, but he really put all of himself into this role, and it was truly him and Daniel Radcliffe's baby in the sense that the Daniels, this was their directorial debut, this was their writing debut, this was everything. If they didn't have two juggernaut guys with a ton of experience and a ton of acting chops going into this, I don't know if this film turns out exactly the same way. I think there's a ton of reliance on those guys' acting ability, especially Dano's, or Dano's because of his, uh, you know, he carries it, literally carries Daniel Radcliffe throughout this film and throughout the entire plot points. So... From the actual performance, fantastic, brilliant, uh, couldn't have been anybody else. And from the character standpoint, tragic, fragile, something that pulls at the heartstrings to a point where you cheer for him, but at the same time, don't want to. And there are parts in the movie, especially when we get to the climax, we could talk about the realities of kind of those things. But he could play someone who's just trying to escape a real-life situation, uh, trying to survive, trying to not get eaten by a bear, trying to eat food, while still playing a character who's trying to convince a corpse that life is worth living. Like, do you understand what I'm trying to grab here? This is absurdist absurdist things that you can't prepare yourself for as an actor. You just have to do it, and you just have to be part of that method, and it just came out just so brilliantly. Uh, I could gush on it for hours, but um, just great performances in general. For sure. Sarah, uh, she is played by Mary Mary Elizabeth Winstead, or uh, a lot of people know her as Ramona Flowers. And she almost serves as kind of a purpose for both Hank and Manny to keep on living uh, because she is Hank's phone background. And um, Manny does not really know how Hank got this picture, but we kind of eventually find out that uh, he just took a picture of Sarah on a bus and saved it as his phone background. Uh, Kelly. Is Hank a creepy guy, and do you really uh, root for him throughout it like uh, like we are? Yeah, I was going to say, I like that he isn't just purely a character to feel sympathy for, which in the way that he's set up, in the way that we're introduced to him, and 
he alludes to it many times that he has has had thoughts of suicide like throughout his life. But then you see the picture on the bus that he took and then Mary Elizabeth Weinstead sees it herself as well. And she's like, I don't even know this guy. And he came to my house disheveled and has a photo of me as his background. Extremely creepy. And you can understand why he is that way, too. The whole story. The other big sympathy point I had was obviously his mother. And then the relationship with his father with the automated e-cards. Just like, that's so specific. That's such a specific story that like evokes Mm. such a strong response. But... His cardinal sin is, like, one of the creepiest things I think you could do. So he's a character with just a lot of gray for me. I can't say that I feel as sympathetic to him, knowing that that's what he does. And and things could be worse, and it's not his... I understand why he's like that, but I don't like him because of it. Gotcha. I think, Kevin, did you want to go next? And I was also going to expand, did Hank's backstory with his mom and dad kind of adequately give him... A reason to root for, even though we know he can be a little creepy. So I'm only going to throw in on the, I really liked that um, they did not make him completely innocent in this circumstance. I think they did a very Mm -hmm. good job of the ending being like, nope, this dude was a couple thousand yards away from a wife and kid and made the whole camp in the backyard and was potentially stalking this individual. And I don't think that they make an excuse for that. Uh, I mean, the guy gets let off in handcuffs at the end of our film. So I think that they do a good job of being like, no, this is still something that, you know, for better or for worse, whose fault is it, right? Society's or his own um, is still a point that the film makes. So, uh, Blaze, I think I'm kind of catching a, an idea here. Was um, Hank an antihero? Well, I want to go back to what Kelly was saying real quick. I do think he is an antihero in some senses. But I think by that point in the movie, like, we're already talking about the end of the movie, just so everyone knows in case you haven't watched it. (laughs) He had already told Manny that we don't need Sarah, we have each other. He had already grown out of this infancy of emotion, and the truth has to set you free. So he had to own up that, you know, he had this creepy photo on his phone which i'm not defending but at the same time by the time she had found it out he was already past her he was already living his best life he was ready to fart in front of people i think her finding thing on the phone the fact that you know all this like uh imagination world was you know just beyond their hill i think it's part of the catharsis of hank that he had to deal with reality because he was living in this um imaginative world where he felt safe with manny so it's creepy, yes, but the fact that when it came out, when it did, it means that he had gotten past stocking of a, a wife and mother. He is not uh, redeemable in the complete sense, but I do believe that, like, again, we're all flawed. And if we can get past that part in us, then there is a redemption arc. All right, so let's go to our other uh, lead character here, Manny. This film came out about five years after the last Harry Potter, and at this time, Daniel Radcliffe was really trying to break out of the typecast of Harry Potter. He was taking a lot of indie flicks at this time, and none were very successful. Uh, Kelly, do you think? Uh, what did you think of his portrayal of Manny? And also, did he break out of that Harry Potter typecast with this film? Yeah, I mean, it helps for me that I... I haven't watched all the Harry Potter movies, but I feel like I grew up with him. He's probably like my age or so, too. So I recognize his face as Harry Potter, but 
I also recognized him as a dead body in this movie. I would find myself at a spot where I'm like, that's actually, he's actually a real person, <laughs> like, in there right now. It's almost like a prosthetic in the way that he's flopped around and the way that he moves. But if there was ever a way to, like, kill your typecast, I guess playing a corpse would be <laughs> a very direct route to take and that's what he did and yeah. it worked for me i think he did an excellent job and it was very believable mm-hmm. <laughs> uh kevin uh same question to you uh what did you think of his portrayal of manny and did he break out of that harry potter typecast for you can you can you not see him as harry potter anymore after watching this film all right so for me i have watched uh, all the harry potter movies several times over they're a huge part of my family's christmas blah 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 blah. so for me he'll always be harry potter but he did do a very good job in separating that image for me in this film he was doing some interviews that I was listening to that he talked about how he was struggling getting this character down and he was trying to figure out how he was going to do his lines and they were all coming across zombie-like. And he then realized that the makeup and the effects team is what is going to make that effect of the dead body. All he has to worry about now is delivering the lines and getting that side of uh, of what we're looking for in this film. Um, I think Kelly did a really good job on the physical acting or mentioning the physical acting of him in this role. A lot of, of limp body scenes and a lot of things where Paul Dano was literally carrying his, you know, presumably 150, 160 pound frame around the woods for 22 days. Uh, and even though he had the ability to use a uh, prosthetic in some circumstances, Daniel Radcliffe really wanted to be out there he wanted to be part of that process so much as even when the directors suggested they use a prosthetic butt for the first scene and the farting boat he said nope you're taking a model of my butt because it's gonna be me and i want it to be authentic so <laughs> it's you know little things like that that probably go a long way and he just really established himself um going into this i knew of the farting corpse of Daniel Radcliffe in a movie. So now that I got to kind of put it all together, it kind of was really fun for me. And it did a really good job of, uh, like you said, distancing him away from that Harry Potter life. For sure. Uh, please, do you want to add anything to that? or uh, Just that he'll always be Harry Potter to me. It's not, nothing against him or his <laughs> acting. He's, he's grown into a fine actor. He's just he's just part of the cultural zeitgeist. That, that's a tough that's yeah. a tough thing to break, but he did a good job. And for sure. Uh, you guys already said enough about how wonderful he did. So. Well, all right, I'm going to come back to you for this question. Um, I feel like cinematography, this is a very important part of the film. Uh, this film definitely falls into magical realism, and it requires quite creative camera work to create this bright and creative world for Hank and Manny to live in, you know? And Larkin Seipel was the cinematographer. Uh, what did you think of his job uh, in cinematography creating this bright and colorful world? I mean, I think you said it right there. The color palette was, like, awe-inspiring. I think the fact that they did it in the... Uh, shot it mostly in the Pacific Northwest, you know, with the big green pine trees, the way that it like you said, it almost went into like a magical fantasy world, even though that took place on earth. And then, you know, Kelly had already mentioned, you know, through the editing of, you know, like the super slow-mo actions parts, you know, the way that they shot the angles of like the bus, the, uh, the whole make-believe aspect of it, where they were creating a world for Sarah and Manny, fake Sarah and Manny, it, they did such a good job at the angles and the zoom outs and the zoom ins that 
you knew it was he was in a stick bus. You knew he was in like a stick luau, but at the same time, it felt so real and so authentic. And I think it really came through in the the camera work. I I know Kevin said like without the phenomenal acting job of uh, Paul Dano that this movie probably wouldn't have been the same. If if this movie wasn't shot the way it was, I would probably have a completely different view because that's how good I think uh, the movie was shot. It was it was amazing. Yeah, hell yeah. And um, Kelly, same question to you. Yeah, I was gonna what do you say, think of the cinematography? Yeah. The blues were bluer, the greens were greener, and everything was nice and soft looking. That's how I <laughs> felt watching this. And I like uh, that bus scene that Blaze just talked on uh, really stood out to me because then you get all this like sunshine flowing in and it's super yellow and it's this whole different kind of feel. And the other scene that really stood out to me is when they could finally make popcorn after they unlock oh. the, the gift of fire and... Uh, it like syncs up with the music too and it's like that part I I adored that part too. But yeah, beautiful, beautiful cinematography. I would not change anything that they did. And it is just this like dreamscape and it shows the creativity of all these little props that they've made in the woods. They make it look so real with just revealing enough that you're like, How's Daniel Radcliffe dance? Oh, and he hooked up a whole entire like I understand it and then that's all you need to see. And then they move on. It's not like you need to see the process of all this stuff is made when he's telling him about how the world is and new props are popping up like every three seconds. You don't need to know everything behind it. They just show you enough and enough to make it whimsical. So a uh, really good job with cinematography for sure. For sure. Kevin, I'm going to couple these questions together okay, so you can answer yeah. the last one and answer this. Okay. Muse music. Yes. The music to this film was done by Andy Hall and Robert McDowell from Manchester Orchestra. And uh, the score to this film is much different than Manchester Orchestra and their music. It was almost folky. I would, I'd almost categorize it as indie folk in several parts, but then other parts it's just straight up acapella and it's very grand. And uh, Daniel Radcliffe actually said that the music from this film was played on set. Uh, Robert composed music before the shoot started, which never ever happens in film. We could hear the music on set for certain scenes. And uh, just like the cinematography, it is such a large part of creating this magically real world. So what did you think of the music uh, coupled with the cinematography? Anytime that you can take a soundtrack for a film and separate it from the film and have me interested in listening to it completely by itself, then you have something beautiful. And I can see myself buying this original soundtrack, putting it on a record and just having it play. The amount of detail that they put into this soundtrack and the fact that they wrote it before filming is very, very intricate, or not intricate, is very indicative of the way that these directors treat music in their film. I think we get a very clear idea that their history comes from music videos in the sense that they're incorporating the music into every single aspect from the very first second to the very end. They use it to uh, make the characters highs higher, lows you know, feel that much more depressing. They use the actual actors' untrained voices in these acapella pieces that just all of a sudden you see you know, Paul Dano is about to you know, commit suicide in the first scene and he's singing and then running across the beach. And it's mind-blowing. Kelly mentioned the popcorn scene and that's the, the kickoff to that montage music that man, I just think about that song and I get goosebumps. Like I would go run a mile around the, you know, the block to that song. It, it's just one of those things. It, but it's also just as absurd as the rest of the film. I mean, the lyrics to that montage, 
Now we kill the raccoon. We're using your body like it's a machine gun. Now we are shooting <laughs> some fish. Our friendship is blossoming. Let's eat the stuff we killed. Now we started a fire. Like, these are the actual lyrics that are in these songs, but you would never know. Same with when we get to the Cotton Eye Joe cover and we talk about, you know, he says some of the songs that get stuck in their head are the ones that you hate the most. We get a, a, an ethereal version of Cotton Eye Joe, and then we get this Jurassic Park Oh, I don't even know how to describe that scene other than it was absolutely brilliant. I mean, he's getting a dead corpse to sing Jurassic Park, and then Daniel Radcliffe's like, "What? what is that? And then we get that scene as if you, that quote, if you don't know Jurassic Park, you don't know shit. And I was just like, yeah. yep. So all in all, what I can say is that the music was brilliant. It was absolutely effective in this um, movie. It was something that I want to listen to again and again. Um, super unique in the sense that it was created beforehand, and it gave the actors something to kind of... Um, play off of there's a really cool scene where they um, are filming Paul Dano on the boogie board as he's going across the ocean and they're playing that song that you're seeing in that scene in like loudspeakers as he's going across like I can just imagine being a method actor and having that what you know is going to be playing as you do it's just brilliant to me so kudos to them very awesome job the other scene I wanted to talk about uh, cinematography wise I love the cave with the rain and uh, mm. the way they filmed that from the inside with the lights flashing on the out and just kind of how that was the start of all the supernatural stuff and just in general so kudos Kelly did you have a favorite song from the film I know we were chanting pop popcorn pop popcorn when we, uh, we watched this I understand why the music is what it is and Kevin did a great job of like describing why it's a perfect fit I have to say, it's just not my taste, though. I really hate music uh, that sounds like this. <laughs> so uh, I totally get why it's in there. I think that the biggest smile I did was the Jurassic Park overture. And when Daniel Radcliffe just starts sitting there going, bup, 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 and he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm singing a song so you don't get self-conscious. And then it then turns into a whole song and you still hear that little voice carrying through the whole time. It's really cool. I'm not even knocking the choice. I understand why the music's so good. It's just not for me. So I would never get a soundtrack of this unless I wanted to be miserable, but I get it. And it's so the right fit for this movie. So. All right, Blaze, did you, uh, did you like the music or no? As the deciding factor, I, I, I tend to lean with Kevin. I thought the uh, the music was as as genuine as the movie, as the cinematography, as the dialogue, as everything else. I mean, everything just felt like it was supposed to be there. I know it's a little corny at times that uh, I, I'm fucking crazy song. It's like I would listen to that in real life. The popcorn song is very annoying, but I really enjoyed it. I feel like the way that music is incorporated in this film, it really, like, it's it's not there as a filler. It's there to really get into um, Hank's psyche of, like, what he's feeling at the moment. And the way that the music, you know, juxtaposes to his feelings at the time, I think they do an excellent job at that. And I didn't know that they did it they made the music for the movie like you know that's that's insane that, that that's a level of detail that you know i'm we're gonna talk about everything everywhere all at once in a couple years at this point but you know <laughs> you you get the same vibes of like how much i thought the music in that movie meant to them i go into this movie i'm like wow so like this is where it all came from this was the lab this is where they cooked it up and 
there's so many good nuggets, especially in music. Um, it's a little folksy for me at sometimes, but I think, especially in the setting, um, I think it worked for it. But overall, I'm glad the music was there. The Daniels have even said that they were um, they rewrote a couple of the scenes after they got the soundtrack back to them because it was so good and they wanted to incorporate as much of it as possible into the actual scenes in the movie. For sure. So, yeah, you were also talking about montages here, and yeah. this film has a whole lot of montages in it. We have the montage of Manny on the bus trying to talk to Sarah, who is Hank dressed as Sarah. The montage of Hank and Manny finding vodka and partying and them doing the shadow show. And uh, we know our director shot music videos before and pretty iconic ones at that. So it almost kind of seems like we're watching a slew of music videos here through the middle of the film. So, Blaze. Did this film successfully do what Spring Breakers couldn't do in that it used strong montages to carry a well-thought-out story and develop interesting characters? <laughs> Good Listen, luck, buddy. <laughs> when we talked about leading questions before... <laughs> Hey, hey, the flaming piano montage in Spring Breakers, we all agreed, was actually pretty okay. Thank yeah, you. I agree with that one, all right. <laughs> I'm someone who generally thinks that montages are a crutch. Uh, I think, uh, what was that Ben Stiller movie we reviewed that had a lot of monsters? While We Were Young? Yeah. While We Were Young? Yeah, yeah While okay. We Were Young. I, I thought they did it well. I thought Spring Breakers did it well. I think A24 has a pretty good um, history with montages. And this one is probably the best of all of them because, like Kelly said in the cinematography, a lot of things happen really fast and... The fact that we don't have to question how all this wonderful things are made for us um, and it's just shown to us is means that the movie knows that we don't care. It's just the fact that these Rube Goldberg machines are actually working for us. Yeah, I think the montages are an extremely important part of the movie and it really like that's when you really get to know Hank because the way that Manny is feeling, especially towards Sarah, it, it throughout the montages it bleeds and you like you it cuts to a point where it snaps for you the fact that it works so effectively in a thing that i like think is a terrible movie crutch is a terrible movie trope i mean i i gotta give them credit for it because the montages were probably some of the best parts especially camera wise i think the camera was at the coolest like angles when they were doing montages and yeah i mean i could talk all day about it because it's just amazing how they did it and spring breakers was great too britney spears rocks go fuck yourself <laughs> yeah. uh kevin same question to you yeah. montages yeah. i think that they did a really good job of having different um feelings within each montage so i mean you kind of referenced some of the ones that we did see um but the bus montage especially there was just something about the way that that whole scene was kind of created all of a sudden they were it went from Paul Dano putting on the the wig and the dress to all of a sudden this huge elaborate well thought out you know role play essentially what it came out to be Daniel Radcliffe has since been quoted as saying if there was only one thing that he could take away from his career at least at the time when this was recorded that he would take that scene um, as what he would be remembered for he really thought that they did such a great job I mean he kept captured so much emotion in that scene in general um, I think that um, I kind of beaten the whole, you know, sounds like a soundtrack thing um, to death here. But when you have such powerful music to add your scenes to, you really want to take your strengths as a as a film director and, and put that in there. So 
there's absolutely no doubt that's the reason why is because of all their experience. Um, you look back at their most famous music videos and that's the slow-mo montages and the, the, the things that make them who they are as writers and directors. Uh, without it, the film wouldn't be what it is. Uh, and it does a very good job of breaking up some of the uh, dialogue-heavy areas, even though you are having a, a corpse. Obviously, you need to make sure that there are some action happening. Um, and how better way to do it uh, especially when you have absurd things like lighting farts on fire and hunting raccoons with you know rocks in your mouth and you know, the little things that go you can't show that in in the natural setting without it coming across as just ridiculous but it comes across as a little less ridiculous in the montage for sure so kelly you didn't like the music in this do you think this film would still be good without the music is the script story and acting good enough for this film to exist on its own Nope, I think it needs the music, and I think it was the right fit for the movie as well. Okay, so even in the montage scenes, you would not have replaced that music at all? Nope. It's just a taste thing. It just goes down to a personal taste thing, and I acknowledge it. (laughs) And I have to live with this. (laughs) (laughs) But But I wouldn't change it. I get why they picked it, and it perfectly suits it. For sure. Um, And I guess I'll go back to you for this, too. A lot of talk of masturbation in this film, of course, farting. It even goes as far as to tie masturbation to Hake's dead mom. So did the crudeness of this film lessen the emotional parts for you? Yeah, for sure. Especially the boner humor. I mean, we finally get past a lot of the farting, which was just like, for me, just super annoying and like childish. No offense to people who like it. It's totally fine. (laughs) But... When he puts a cork in it, I was just like, finally. And then not long after that, we moved to boner humor. And I'm like, I've never been a young man. So I don't know if this is ever going to make me laugh. And it just goes on and on and on. And yeah, it's a lot. Kevin? Okay. So the directors have gone on record in saying that they really hate fart humor as well in film. So what they did with this one was incredibly stylistic and artsy, right? So we get just the right amount of farts in the first <laughs> seven or whatever the right minutes. <laughs> then literally, literally, <laughs> as they put the cork, as they put the cork in Daniel Radcliffe's ass, there is not another fart for the next hour long. So they do such a really good job of putting it in there. No breaks. You, you don't get another one. But the next time you hear it, it's like there's a release, right? That emotional sense. Like fart is a huge allegory in this entire movie. And they did such a great job of, using it for comedic relief in the right places, and even the the final fart, we'll call it that, and, you know, Blaze already said it, but, like, he has the courage to fart in public for the first time. So the potty humor uh, directors absolutely despised it, but they used it very, very effectively. Same question to you, Blaze. Did the crudeness uh, lessen the emotional parts of the film no, it for you? intensified it for me. I <laughs> No, I think, like, okay, so the whole masturbation yeah. talk, I... I... I do want to go on record saying that the first time um, Manny got a boner, watching re- reading the uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition, that was a little creepy, and I hated how it moved because <laughs> I don't know if you guys know anatomy. <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah, radar, that was, yeah, that was very jarring for me. But the masturbation, the masturbation was aspect it. was a huge part <laughs> of it because for me, it's he is very sexually repressed in the fact that he can't masturbate without thinking of his mom because of the whole story that, you know, you lose like X amount of minutes of life every time you masturbate. And it's a whole crazy ass story. So part of his sexual obsession is 
really what probably starts his obsession with this stranger on the bus and he represses it the again i don't know what manny is but if he's like his id if he's like his child version of me he's like well why wouldn't you just want to be happy like you know like if this thing makes people happy then just do it but he's so repressed by it so it's a, like it's a very important aspect of who hank is as a character and why he acts the way that he acts because he is so afraid of you know himself and of how society treats him and masturbation is taboo at least in 2016 so it's a very important part of the whole bigger discussion and if we don't get the crudeness then we don't get down to the nitty-gritty of why hank is who hank is so it was appropriate even if it's a little gross sometimes i.e the compass boner yeah, yeah. i will say that the, the cock compass was a little weird but yeah, uh for sure <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving towards the end, they get closer and closer to civilization unto the point where Hank realizes, hey, there's a car right outside there, like right here. His phone even gets like a, a signal battery, and this leads to uh, them almost getting killed by a bear. So Manny is very frightened by the real world, and the brief glimpse he gets of it after him and Hank shoot up that tree while running from the bear, and uh, he sees the city... He says, you know, you can't fart in front of, uh, front of other people. Why go home? Sounds so sad. You can't do anything over there. And he then saves Hank from a bear trying to kill him. And he carries Hank to Sarah's backyard. He is then even more deterred when Sarah's daughter finds him scary. When Sarah's daughter sees them in their backyard and, like, is creeped out by them. So, Kelly, why do you think Manny's powers went away at this point? right as kind of civilization dejected them? Good question. Manny's just like, in my opinion, just a f like a figment of Hank's imagination. I really don't know. <laughs> like, I wish that I had more of an answer for this, but I'm just like, for me, all, this movie went on too long. <laughs> when we paused it after okay. an hour, I was like, we're still going. Okay, let's see how it wraps up. But I don't know. Like, it's it's so absurd and crazy that I just gave up any possibility to explain things at that point so all right i'm gonna take a stab at this so i <laughs> oh, think that, that um the reason that uh the powers go away is because hank emerging from the woods is as we've kind of alluded to him overcoming this phobia and this fear of society and he's found a way to climb out of his imaginary bus cafe situation down the hill and his now admitted that he doesn't need Sarah, right? He doesn't need this idea of, of that, and he's willing to kind of get reintroduced into society. So I think that's the literal, I'm going to dump myself in the backyard, and I'm going to speak to Sarah, regardless if it's for better or for worse. Um, and I think that that's only a camp accomplished by Manny, or the assistance of Manny, and having to explain you know humanity and things like that to him. Uh, so I think that's kind of what the representation is there, uh, especially as we kind of see the, the way the whole ending compiles itself. But Manny did its job, uh, created the confidence in uh, our main character to kind of overcome those obstacles and uh, dumps him in the backyard to kind of deal with the real world. For sure. Uh, Blaze, same question to you. Why, why do you think Manny's powers went away, you know, right as Sarah's daughter kind of got creeped out by them and dejected them, basically? In my interpretation of the film, Hank is is Manny, Manny is Hank. I mean, man, Manny. 
uh, he's the part of him that wants to uh, grow personally. So the closer he gets back to like the things that actually scares him, i.e. human interaction, i.e. rejection, i.e. heartbreak, uh, he starts to shut down. So mm-hmm. I think he loses it because he felt safer in his fake imaginary world and the powers that he manifested for Manny no longer work because he essentially shuts down and freezes himself because he's afraid to be himself. So that part mm-hmm. of him goes back inside of him. Gotcha. That's All right. Very good answer. Yeah, no, I, I mostly What do you think, agree. Eric? Well, okay. I think that when they get to, you know, Sarah's backyard, basically, like, this is them reaching the real world and them having to re-enter into societal norms. And those societal norms are the same things that have broken Hank, i.e. Manny, up until this point. And it's basically kind of... The whole film is about loving yourself and trying to live freely as yourself in a world that uh, cannot really accept you. And especially with people with mental illness and people that are... They, that have trouble conforming um, to the the real world. Uh, this whole film is like about them still finding a way to love themselves when the real world and the societal norms that are put on them break them down at every corner of the way. I mean, th- this is going to lead right into my final question. You know, Sarah comes outside and realizes Hank is hurt and needs help and, of course, calls the cops and... News camera co- cameras come, and Hank hides who he is, says, uh, you know, he's Manny, so he can avoid having to explain that he took a picture of Sarah and, like, saved it as his phone background, you know, and his dad, who he's had a sordid relationship with in the past, he cries as the cop appears to be putting his son away in a body bag and needs to identify him, and this then, it actually breaks Hank out of his shell, and, it you know, we realize, or... The news cameras and everybody uh, realize that Hank is the man who's still living. So, Kelly, you know, you had a different kind of message from this film, I think, that you took. Uh, After that final scene right there, what did you think, what did you get uh, from this film as a final message? Yeah, it is, I guess, self-acceptance at the end of the day. The world is still going to judge, but you just got to show them what an absurd little creepy freak you really are and then they'll <laughs> laugh i guess that's that's what i got <laughs> um i don't even mean to be like a hater but i just don't feel like it is very deep i think that it's pretty just like a loser in the woods <laughs> and like the story of him learning that the world kind of sucks so how's he gonna live in it how's he gonna get over it and actually exist in it by farting and making boner jokes. Yeah, I mean, I, it could be just him kind of accepting himself as who he is, though. And yeah, it could be that. Whether the, yeah, <laughs> whether that be farting, making boner jokes, I, that's just one part of his personality in the sum of it, you know. True. Yeah, that's that's what I'll have to say to defend Hank. But I'm I'm the uh, world Kevin, I'm the world who you. judges him pretty harshly. Yeah, I'll acknowledge so I it. I think that. Yeah. I think the major overarching themes, as we've kind of all touched on, is it really is a story about what it means to be human, right? What it means to to truly have to deal with all of the different things that come at you as a human, whether it's love, loss, 
death, you know, rejection, embarrassment, name anything about the human condition. I feel like this movie tries to touch on it in one sense or another. It's pretty much out there that there's a philosophical something to be taken from this. Uh, but they also don't want you to overthink it too, too much because with the inclusion of our fart jokes and boner things, like, if it was too much about this emotional message, I don't think that directors would go out of their way to put those other aspects in there. I think that it's really one of just kind of one of those, you, everybody takes it differently. Kelly's going to take it differently than me. I'm taking it from Blaze. From Kelly. Every single person who watches this film has some sort of emotional baggage or something inside of them that kind of could influence it. Or it, they could take nothing away from it at all. I was talking to Eric about this earlier, and I'm going to get to it in my review, but this, for me, feels a little bit more of a personal A24 movie. Not that I'm a freaky, weird dude who likes to hide out in the woods and, you know, do those weird things, but mm. it's something about the idea of, of society um, and just rejection in general. I think that it does a good job of, of making some good points on it and how one kind of can go through those troubles and still escape and not you know, do ultimate harm to themselves. So overall, great themes that we were able to take from it, but also just a good, you know, we were able to see it from a good sense of a good movie. For sure. Same to you, Blaze. What final message from this film? What did you get from it? Man, that's a that's a real tough question. I mean, I, I think it is be yourself. I think it's like people are going to judge you no matter what you do, but inaction is worse than the other two fates of whatever your action is so you need to be true to yourself mm -hmm. you need to find your inner happiness and isolation might seem like good at times but if you stay isolated and in on yourself for an exaggerated amount of time you're going to have bad thoughts you're going to think about suicide you're going to repress feelings that y you need to let out so again i think this movie is speaks very strongly about being an individual being proudly weird not to use a cliche but you know let your freak frag fly because anything less than that you're not going to have a fulfilling life and i think the fact that they allude to manny actually being a jumper a person who actually did commit suicide and it's probably someone who didn't live the life to their fullest i think it's a redemption arc for hank that he doesn't have to go down that route. If we take this as, you know, it was all in his imagination, the cops are going to have to look at him as a guy who's in a lady's backyard playing with a corpse for a couple weeks. And uh, mental illness, we need to talk about that too. I'm not going to get too far in the weeds on that. But I think the overall arcing theme of this movie is to be yourself and let the world judge you on that instead of, cowering in the corner and letting the world pass you by so that fart at the end i know kelly didn't like any of the farts but that fart at the end should at least ignited something in you that you know what he would not fart in front of a corpse an entire movie and then at the end he lets one deadly ripper go and he was set free so hopefully thank god the movie ends ambiguously but hopefully hank ends up living the best to his true life because he learned a lot in a few weeks for sure so uh kelly do you think manny was real or all in hank's head all in hank's head i had said that earlier but i think he's i think he's a dead body and i think that's okay. that's it so this do you think this ending has to be realistic um you know like do you think that 
civilization finding all the things they built out of recyclables and everything and farting jet ski ending, you know, do you think it has to be realistic or do you think that would have made it better? If it was more realistic, would it be a better ending? Yeah. I'm okay with the ending. Like, I think you just have to throw all caution to the wind with this movie. <laughs> and... <laughs> mm-hmm. And... Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like... Yeah. The last line of the whole film, right, Carrie? Right. I don't know what... what the if fuck? they If they made it too serious at the end, then that would have changed a lot of things. They, I like that they... They keep it just as silly as they started it, and that's how they yeah. write out the ending. For sure. I was just kind of asking that because, you know, we don't have Cole here. So this whole idea that he took, this guy took the whole film to get out of the woods, and then uh, they went through the woods in, like, what, five minutes at the end, and then we get a farting jet ski dead body. Uh, it's a little absurd. Cole which was probably goes with the whole film, right? Guys. You know, you would at least need yeah. four trees to make a bus that big. So for me, it just took me out of the movie. It's... <laughs> you need to talk a little slower and more Canadian, but yeah. <laughs> He's going to talk about the propulsion of farts and how it wouldn't allow someone to jet ski across it, the yeah. Pacific Ocean. It would Ocean. take 40,000 PSI to move a 120-pound man. <laughs> God. You could never drink the water out of a rotting corpse. I hope I don't even have to get into the reasons why. Yeah. <laughs> And speaking of rotting, Ooh. why doesn't that body tend to do that? Okay, yeah. go on and on. <laughs> so, okay, what, what do we think actually happened in this film? Do you think he was just in the backyard, like behind the backyard of Sarah's house the whole time, and uh, he was just imagining all this, Kevin? And- yeah, I think that um, if we talk the mental illness side of things, I mean, there's lots of documented uh, incidences of, of people who suffer things from like schizophrenia and some other very severe um, mental illnesses that can put them in delirium, psychosis, things that they just have no idea where they are. Mm-hmm. And they could be running around in circles. And if no one knows that they're missing, um, and it really does sound like uh, his character, I mean, he has an automatic e-card with his dad, and we know his mom's missing, and mom's dead. So it absolutely could fall in line with any number of instances across this country of of adults disappearing due to mental illness and knowing no one has any idea where they went or what happened to them so absolutely very much a realistic possibility uh, especially coming out of the woods and you know in that state of condition they were actually showing this film in um concurrence with some mental health health awareness uh, things as well so it's definitely a very prevalent uh, theme in this film and it could happen anywhere Blaze, what do you think actually happened at, at the end here, gonna, or in general? I'm going to take film? an Eric the Witch route on this, and I'm going to say it 100% happened. <laughs> um, because, yeah. again, when you take the fantastical moments of this movie, it, the, the fire starting with uh, his fire ass and his jet ski ass and his water mouth, like, the fantastical elements are so hilariously fantastic. We talked about montages of like him shooting shit out of his mouth and stuff. I just want it to be real. I think that would be great. And the way that the movie ends where everyone sees him farting off into the sea, everyone who was like so judgmental of Hank, his dad gives him like a knowing smile. Like, ah, you were. So I'm going to go ahead and say, yes, it was a actual fantastical adventure. And Nanny is the corpse that saves America one person at a time. I'm going to agree with that, and I'm going to say, uh, I mean, it, it's kind of like The Witch for me, too, where it doesn't really matter if it was one or the other, you know? 
But another film I think I want to tie this to is The Lobster. The Lobster is all about societal norms, and The Lobster, obviously, completely different film, but I think in the end, they sort of both had a similar message. And I, I definitely think lying was a big theme of this film, how we lie to ourselves and to others to seem better or uh, more polite. And these mistaken assumptions of ourselves, you know, lead to delusion and leaves everyone worse off in the end. So that's kind of what I took from it, too. And yeah, there we have it. Woo! <laughs> Now, Eric, Eric you go. made my thoughts think All thoughts, right. and I'm shutting down. <laughs> Brain. All right, so uh, I guess I'll start with this one after having said that. Um, I watched this film, I think, for the first time like three years ago uh, with Kelly, and yeah, it it goes up my route of humor. I do like uh, more crude comedies, and I really love crude comedies, but th- that also have a message in the end. And I really enjoy the message this film this film gave me. And at that same time, it didn't break out of the realm of comedy for me because of the crudeness. I think my favorite comedies sort of also break out of that uh, comedy genre. And this still is very, even a genre f- film for me, even though it's a dark comedy. I, I really like this film for the genre it's in, but I don't think it breaks out of it. The cinematography and music were both phenomenal. I love the writing and the acting, so all of that just works for me. But in the end, yeah, like, I, I don't think, like, for everything, everywhere, all at once, that really just broke out and transcended all genres. This one did not as much, and I still I still enjoyed it, but just it's not going to get into the A category for me. So I'm going to give this a B plus and a solid B plus at that. I, I enjoy it. It just did not break into that A category for me. I will give this to Kevin next. Wonderful. Um, As I've kind of alluded to in this review already, and um, something that I really want to kind of push forward before I get into this is that while watching this film, I really enjoyed the process itself. Typically, I take a lot of notes and I get a little kind of in depth while I'm watching it. This one, I set my pen and my paper down and I just watched and I just enjoyed. Uh, I laughed with the movie. I cried with the movie. I really went on a journey uh, personally with the whole thing. It really feels like the first A24 movie for me, that speaks to me. That is what I'll call my A24 movie so far. I mean, we've, we all kind of have them. We all kind of think about them in a different way. And for me, this ridiculous, absurd movie that on paper should never have happened and probably had a lot of people wondering what in the world these two were doing has given me kind of this rabbit hole of thought to kind of start going down and It's interesting for me because I haven't seen uh, everything everywhere all at once like the rest of you. And I know that that movie is going to transcend a lot of what I think. And I think that the themes that we see in this film will probably continue to go on. But this really is the freshman introduction for the Daniels. And I think that we'll probably continue just to see so much for But anyway, to the actual film itself, everything for me worked. Everything from the writing to the dialogue to the filming to the music to the way the actors interacted with each other to the simple ensemble of the cast, the themes, the title track. There's, you know, I don't want to beat it to a dead horse, but I think that we talk about bottling up emotions a lot. And this movie asks the question, what happens if you do that? What happens if you let your emotions fester, if you don't have a good outlet for how you're feeling every single day? And I think we need to ask ourselves that. And I know this is a movie podcast, but it's a really big question. 
if you have those feelings and you have those emotions, how are you generating them? How are you getting them to the world? Because if you don't, the world's never going to know and you're certainly going to suffer for it. At the end of the day, I love this movie. I want to watch it again. I want to watch it again right now. I want to tell everybody that they need to watch it. And if they never heard of it, especially those people that enjoy everything everywhere all at once, let's go back and watch this one and see where it started. It was just phenomenal start to finish. I'm going to give it an A24. Woohoo. All right, Kelly, you next. For this movie, I have wrote down on my little sticky note that it's all great pieces. It's just when it's all together, it just isn't the puzzle that I like. And by that, I mean, I think that every choice is just like the right one for this movie. But when it comes to my personal taste and what I took away from this movie, it's just not it for me. Um, The messages, I know I kind of said it was simple, but just like rejection is bad. Love yourself share your experiences with people, get involved in life, don't let it pass you by, and don't take things too seriously. Those are like the things that I kind of wrote down. And for me, that's just not enough to chew on. And then on top of that, they put this really absurdist lens on it. And that also is just not the lens that I necessarily love. You need to do even more for me to like really like that. But like I said, all the pieces, I understand how it all fits together i understand that it's a really good movie and i wouldn't eric you had asked me about the music earlier i wouldn't change it i wouldn't change the ending there's nothing that i would change i i get it and i'm glad that it exists and it's a really silly thing i was describing to one of my friends that we were going to watch this movie she goes what's it about and i have to like hang my head down and go daniel radcliffe's dead and he farts a lot (laughs) So the fact that we get to say that in this world, they are putting out into the world, the real world, what they put into this movie. So it's this whole phenomenon. But yeah, so at the end of the day, it's just not enough for me. And Eric mentioned we watched this three years ago. The only thing I remembered about this movie was that title scene of Daniel Radcliffe jet ski. I had forgotten everything that happened in this movie because... I hate to say the word forgettable because it is really beautiful. I hope my conflictions are being accurately described. I'm still going to put it above. (laughs) um, I'm going to put it above a C, though. I'm going to let it sit at a B minus 24, but it's really close to a C plus area, but solid B minus 24. It is every millennial's dream to ride Daniel Radcliffe like a jet ski across the Pacific Ocean with his pants down. Blaze, you next. So... I just want to first of all say everything that Kevin said is 100% correct. I think America as a society, we don't talk about mental wellness enough. And if we have to disguise it in fart and boner jokes, then I'm all for it. Because I think this movie is bigger than, you know, even it imagined it would be. I think that a lot of people, um, again, I'm talking about myself personally. There have been times where I felt all alone in my life. There are times where I felt like I wasn't good enough for this world. And there are times where in my life where I wanted to give up and go to my own desert island and maybe not go that far, you know, as far as Hank wanted to go. But, you know, there's a lot of times where you just never feel good enough for this world. And this is an odyssey. This is an epic of a man who had to learn through a 
farting corpse that he is good enough, that he is good enough for this world. And we we never even talked about, you know, we call him a stalker, like simp guy, but like there's a lot of guys who feel like any girl is not good enough for them, so they won't even give that trying thought. I think we learn a lot about ourselves with this movie because you have to learn to be yourself in order to live your best life. And this movie as Eric said, cinematography, musically, uh, editing-wise, everything just, like, melted so well. And I cannot give Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe enough praise for basically taking on a two-man show and living their best, like, almost Wes Anderson-esque life in this fantastical way. I mean, again, in the opening title card, I looked over at my girlfriend and said, this is a Blaze movie. How have I never seen this movie in my life before? This is exactly everything that I love. I love that you can take serious subjects, make comedy out of it, and I, I'm a heavy smoker. I didn't have one smoke break during this entire movie. This, for me, is an absolute A24. I think we don't talk about mental health enough in this society, and I think if this is a great door to open for some people then this is a way to look at it because it shows it shows you not to be afraid of yourself and your deficiencies so i'm gonna leave it at that it's an a24 go watch it uh go watch everything everywhere all at once kevin i think it has a great it's more familial um ties but yep. it, it has very very same through lines so please go watch this movie a not A+, plus, but A. I-, I love the themes. All right. Well, that was Swiss Army Man, everybody. Uh, the Dans, they, uh, they've done great the last few years, or I guess the last year, and congrats to them and just making a great career after starting with uh, just some short films and some music videos. You know, hell yeah. We are big fans of you. Up next, we are going to watch uh, Equals. Uh, it's a... 2016 science fiction romantic drama film, so very different from this one. And uh, also rate us on your favorite podcatcher. And uh, thank you for listening. That was Swiss Army Man. Bye-bye. Thanks, people. It is every millennial's dream to ride Daniel Radcliffe like a jet ski across the Pacific Ocean with his pants down. You know what? Let your freak frag fly because people are going to judge you no matter what you do. I can't masturbate without thinking of his fire ass and his jet ski ass and his water mouth a24